Well, hello and good afternoon again. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint, and I'm really glad you could join us today. I'll tell you a little bit about the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint before we get to our, our very special guests today. Uh, I started the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint really to raise awareness about the issue of restraint and seclusion that happens in schools across our nation. Our mission is really to educate the public and connect people who are dedicated to changing minds, laws, and policies and practices so that restraint and seclusion can be reduced and eliminated from schools uh, really across the nation and beyond. Our vision is really to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. So today I'm very excited about our guest. Uh, we have M Emma Vandercliff joining us today, and we're gonna be talking about her book uh, here, Talk to Me, What Educators and Others Can Learn About De-Escalation from Hostage Negotiators. Really great book, uh, so excited to have her joining us. I do wanna let you know that we're gonna be taking questions today during the interview. So as we're talking about topics, if you have a question, feel free to uh, bring up your question at any time. You'll be able to type that in the chat and we'll be able to see your question there. Also wanna let you know that today's event will be uh, recorded. So this is actually getting pushed both live to Facebook and YouTube, and it will be available after the fact on both of those, as well as an audio podcast. So before we introduce our guest, I want to have join me here, uh, Beth Tolly. Beth is uh, our uh, co-host today, and I want to tell you a little bit about Beth. Hey, Beth. Um, hey. Beth is our uh, Director of Educational Strategy at the Alliance Against Seclusion Restraint. Uh, she has had a career in, in helping people. Uh, Beth's work has included direct services as a pediatric uh, physical therapist, administrative work, followed by a career uh, move that led uh, for the lead agency in early intervention in Virginia, where she finished her career as a team leader. She thought she was finished. She had to come back uh, and help us because we've got lots of work for her, and she's been doing amazing work as part of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, so, of course, uh, you know, she has retired and since then has been involved with uh, NAMI uh, in Virginia, uh, as well as uh, the Early Childhood Mental Health Virginia Board and participates in the trauma-informed community, informed network and school committees. And she's again, uh, part of our team here and does just amazing work. So welcome Beth and uh, glad to have you here today. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here and I, I am, go ahead. I was just gonna say, you know, th th this book um, is one that uh, you, you sent me a copy of this as I recall, right. and you were telling me great things about this book. And then we get the opportunity to to meet Emma and and you know I, I feel almost like you know it's like we have a rock star with us today so really Absolutely. excited so I'm gonna I'm gonna let Emma join the conversation and uh, have you if you would be so kind to introduce her. All right, I am thrilled. Um, the first I knew of Emma was through um, the Cre Credo for Support, uh, and I posted that yesterday. So if folks want to take a look at that. It's it's beautiful. And I told Emma yesterday um, that. 15 years after I first heard it, I'm, I'm getting a deeper understanding of it. Uh, I got it at the time, but not at the deep level that I do now. It's really beautiful. And Emma narrates it on the, the post I did yesterday. So anyway, I, so I had known of Emma and I found this book. I don't know why I found it, but, and I bought it and I read it and it is brilliant. It's just brilliant. Um, so let me tell you about Emma. Uh, I, I got to look at my page so I do it right. <laughs> uh, Emma is <laughs> Emma's a neurodivergent speaker, author, and activist. Um, diagnosed as autistic as an adult, she has embraced the diagnosis with a sense of relief, 
recognition and confirmation. Like many other autistic girls and women, she didn't recognize her experience as represented in the common societal narratives. Emma believes that her experiences as a so-called disruptive student gives her a unique perspective on the issue. And I love that, and I can't, I can't help but think of uh, good trouble. Um, as, and that makes me think of that, um, but I, I, I just love that. Um, and I do think, well, anyway, I'll save my narrative for later. Um, Emma has a master's degree in conflict analysis and management from Royal Roads University, and she's certified as a mediator and negotiator through the Justice Institute in Vancouver. And we have a link where we can reach her. I, I guess at some point we can post that on our website. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you want to carry on, uh, Guy, or do you want me to keep going? Uh, absolutely. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, talk a little bit about the book. But, but Emma, first of all, welcome. We're really excited to have you joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely thrilled. And of course, last year, your book, uh, Talk to Me, What Educators and Others Can Learn About De-Escalation from Host Hostage Negotiators was released. Uh, this book talks about how crisis negotiators de-escalate distraught individuals through communication and how this approach really differs from what commonly happens in schools. Um, and, and this is something that I think our audience is probably very familiar with, uh, where teachers and staff re rely on rewards and punishments and directives. And, you know, in contrast, the book talks about how negotiators rely on listening and support and are successful in resolving more than 90 percent of the issues they're called to negotiate without the loss of life or injury uh, or co coercion. And it sounds like a really interesting piece of research. You know, it's just amazing to me that this you, you kind of made this connection. But this is absolutely, you know, one of the things that that we see happening in classrooms across the country is that kids become dysregulated and demands are put on them or they're offered rewards and consequences. And that leads to things like restraint and seclusion. So um, when when Beth mentioned this to me, you know, my, my thought was hostage negotiation. How, how does that? And as I began to read this, it, it all began to make sense. So, you know, I, I know we were both really, really excited about this, but why don't we start off by just talking a little bit about it and, and talking about really what led you to, to look at this topic, this convergence of, of looking at, because sometimes we get so siloed in an industry or a, a way of doing things that we don't look outside to see some of the best practices that might be happening. So what led you to the, look at this topic? Okay, before we start, I just like to give a little shout out to the autistic community that I'm am part of, who some of whom are are present today, and also to our friends and colleagues at ICARS, the um, international um, group looking at restraint and seclusion. So anyway, um, let me tell you about this. Well, I guess I've I've been interested for a long time in non-coercive approaches to what is commonly called challenging behavior, which is, I have to admit, a phrase I'm not very comfortable with. And, <laughs> yeah, I know. And um, so I have been looking at, at for, for 30 years, my partner and I have traveled around and we've been talking to educators, to human service professionals, et cetera, about listening, support, empathy, and while people were often fine with that idea, there was this sense at some point that maybe this is too soft. This is just too soft, that we actually have to respond to bad behavior or else people will do more of it. And um, so for years and years, we heard the same two things. And those two things were, I don't have time to create relationships 
and you don't know the kids that I work with. And for a long time, I was really frustrated by that response because it seemed like an abdication of responsibility. But in recent years, I've, I've come to look at that a little bit differently. And I think that educators and others have been barraged with a whole lot of um, conflicting um, models, et cetera, for how to deal with these situations. So what happened for me was, I think probably in the 90s, I met a man named Ron Garrison. And Ron Garrison said to me, Ron Garrison was trained as a, a hostage negotiator, but he was also, he for many years, an educator. And he said, educators routinely do things to confront students in ways that hostage negotiators would never do. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit that I found that really counterintuitive and a bit intriguing. Okay, so when it came time for me to do this piece of research, which was part of a, a master's program in 2010, I thought, what if I just looked at that? What if I played with that? I, I have a bit of a divergent brain, and um, I believe in the in the value of cross pollination. Mm -hmm. That the things that we learn from one group of people can help us understand things in another area, because typically what we do in education and in any field really is we only talk to each other. So when we're having trouble, we go to each other. And that makes really, really good sense. Like who knows education better than educators, okay? But unfortunately, it can devolve into what our friend and colleague Rich Villa calls problem admiration, where everyone mm -hmm. is just going like, I have no idea what to do. And so I wanted to see what would happen if we did some cross-pollination. And as I mentioned in the book, Margaret Wheatley once said, when you're stuck, bring in more people. So I thought, well, who can we bring in? Let's look at this. And also, I have to admit that I was a little tweaked by the, the whole thing of, you know, we don't have time to create relationships. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to these hostage negotiators. Who deals with the worst of the worst situations in most of our minds? Barricaded, um, hostage takers, and, and even suicidal people. And who deals with these situations? And what are their results. And so I, I began this process of interviewing people from all over North America. And what I found was that, again, as you mentioned, um, they're successful in more than 90% of the cases, both domestic and international, that they're called upon to negotiate. Now, we tend to see only the ones that have failed. So the general public thinks, oh, yeah, bring in the SWAT team, like mm. get this thing done. Mm. But the negotiators I talked to said, you know what, the statistics are probably closer to 95% wow. in my experience. And so I began to, um, I, I just set out and called people and people were wonderful and generous. I talked to Dominic Messino prior to his untimely death in 2013. Dominic Messino was the person who actually negotiated the Lufthansa hijacking back mm -hmm. in the day. And in 45 minutes, brought 105 hostages safely to Earth. Ironically, um, the, the hostage negotiator, who was an Ethiopian national, um, decided to trade what he was doing for the pilot's sunglasses, which was interesting. But when you think about how high those stakes are, uh, I think that that's what I really began to notice. Like, if people can do this in these high-stakes situations... Um, 
what about the rest of us? And our statistics in schools are not that good. They're mm -hmm. not 90 to 95% of de-escalating people. Now, I do want to say also that um, generally speaking, people say, don't go to law enforcement for any ideas about school. And I would have to agree with that. Um, but the area of, of law enforcement that I went to is very, very, very different. These are people who rely not on the action imperative of doing things. They rely on listening, empathy, support, relationship building, and a few other things that I can talk about as we go on. So I, uh, like, like I say, I, I interviewed a number of people, Dominic Messino, um, John Toast, who actually negotiated the Headingley prison riots, Robin Bursell, who started out as a, a negotiator and then became a forensic artist and now writes best-selling crime novels on her own and mm. with Clive Cussler. And Andy DeWeese, who retired from doing this work and actually went on to become uh, a bylaw enforcer. And he's the most famous bylaw enforcer in his community in Maryland because he never has to enforce anything. He says, I just talk to people. I just talk wow. to people. That's great. There, you raised two things for me with, with this. And that is, uh, one is about the police because in Virginia right now, just for context, we have a special session that was supposed to be about the budget, but instead it's about the budget and uh, criminal reform, criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm in the middle of this situation. I'm also trying to help with a family yeah. um, where I see the police just, it's exactly what you said. What I wish was every one of those police departments, a part of their training was a hostage, hostage negotiation yeah. because they do have the action imperative and you just don't see the same kind of things. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I'm glad you brought that up because I really think it's important in the context of Black Lives Matter right now and all of the things that we're going through to really look at this. And the action imperative is shoot now and ask questions later or not at all. And um, I became very concerned about what I was learning around the time of Michael Brown's um, uh, arrest in Ferguson. And um, one of the things, because negotiators and I have been trained in conflict resolution processes, I was listening to what they were saying. And the people in Missouri um, who were in charge were saying, we don't want to listen to you until you can say it nicely. Oh, gee. Right, right, and that right. is really a tactic right. in which people become silenced. Right. And my concern was that they were using the language of conflict resolution. They were using the language that I heard negotiators um, talk about as a way of silencing people. And my concern in all of this is that this never, ever, ever gets used to silent dissident voices. Instead, we need to bring dissident voices to the table. My Absolutely. old friend, um, Herb Lovett used to call kids who were disruptive the canaries in the coal mine of education, the social critics mm. who tell us what's wrong with what we're doing. And that's a, a totally different mindset. It's kind of like that old thing of, you know, are you a terrorist or a freedom fighter? And I would argue that a lot of the students that we're looking at are, in fact, freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. And we miss a whole lot by trying to tamp down what they're trying to tell us in behavioral programs and sometimes, you know, up to and including restraint and seclusion. We have the, the whole triage process of 
you know, detention, remedial programs, um, suspension, expulsion, and even calling in the police. Right, right. Oh, the police are already there. <laughs> They're often yeah, already they there. Yeah. yeah. Not too much in Canada, although, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. But and and, and, and from the experience that I've had in, in talking to so many, so many families and parents uh, kind of really from across the world, you know, very often it's the perhaps well-intentioned, but not appropriately trained educator or staff that is rather than de-escalating the situation, they are escalating it. They yeah. are, they are putting more demands on the child. They are, they're trying to deal with a child that that's not reachable in the moment. So, so why don't we transition this into talking a little bit about sure. the ways that hostage negotiators approach people in crisis different from the way that so many others do. Sure. Can, can I, I interject one thing? Cause you know, I will. Um, sorry. You mentioned the canary in the coal mine. I, yeah. Does everybody know what that, do you know what that is guy? I just yeah. say, okay, I don't know whether everybody does. I like that phrase because I'm from West Virginia with coal mines. All this, I didn't grow up with the coal mines, but I well, know if you want, if you want to, since you brought it up, if you want to give us a, a brief uh, overview, yeah. that might be helpful to anyone that doesn't. Okay. And my sister used to say she was the canary in the coal mine. So I read that in the book and it was like, bingo. So yeah, uh, would you explain what that is? Well, what? The canaries in the coal mine were the canaries that got sent in by the miners um, to test for air quality. And if they died, mm -hmm. then you knew the air quality wasn't fit for people. Yep. Kind of, it's a horrifying uh, way of looking at things. But um, I think that students who are struggling are often the proverbial canaries in the coal mine of education who can give us a lot of insight mm -hmm. into what we're doing that isn't working but instead the general um, procedure is to put them on behavior plans mm -hmm. right like you are the problem my whole um thesis in a way was how do we change that to looking at behavior as conflict and you know you you cannot actually negotiate a behavior you can negotiate a conflict and if we do that, like I, I always ask people, uh, what would happen if you just saw the situations that you ran into as conflict rather than as behavior problems? Because, you know, we get to call something a behavior problem when we have more power than the person does. Think yeah. about it as a parent. You know, if you have a conflict with your spouse, uh, we call it a conflict. But if your kids are misbehaving, we call it a behavior problem. And that's what teachers do. And that's what all of us do. If we have mm -hmm. more power, we have the ability to name something, right? Yeah. And then we want to solve the problem for them rather than collaborating with them. So we do right. things to kids rather than working with kids. Absolutely. Yeah. And we miss and, all of that insight that they bring. Right. Right. And we miss all that that is our role in it. A guy mentioned it, but the yeah. first thing I learned when I was starting uh, with my family members was to see, oh my gosh, how much am I contributing is as a hundred percent good goal, good, good intentions. I was so stressed mm -hmm. that I was contributing uh, and I had to learn all that. Uh, it's not something that we automatically know. You defined, um, you redefined behavior problems in the book as a conflict. Can, do you, can you say how you did that? I mean, what what is that definition that you would choose? Well, I, I just wanted people to at least entertain the idea that 
um, it may be a conflict in the interactive sphere between people and in terms of the, the, the environment that they find themselves in. And rather than to say somebody, and we do a lot of armchair psychologizing in education, you know, mm -hmm. it happens all the time. It's like, well, he must be ODD or ADD or, you know, whatever the, the, the current thing is. And we dismiss people on that basis mm -hmm. and don't look at what if this person is a freedom fighter and they're actually um, resisting the restrictive environments that they find themselves in. What are schools asking of kids? You know, if your school um, holds as a as a, a narrative that all kids must sit in their seats with both feet on the floor and look at the teacher and answer, only speak when you're spoken to, what happens to the kids who are having trouble regulating or having or wanting to move or mm -hmm. any number of things? So what happens to those kids? And rather than seeing it as a behavior problem or he's a, this one I like even less, he or she is a behavior problem, which transforms behavior from a verb into a noun. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. are that in a globalized way. And we we do kids and ourselves a real disservice. And we also hamper our ability to think about how what other options are there for us. Mm -hmm. So I want to backtrack for a second. Um, we, we kind of went off on a ramp there for a second, Sorry. but but you know, again, <laughs> I, think... I am want to do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. As as we all are, as we all are for sure. But you know, kind of back to this idea that that some of the things that we're doing right now in schools to try to address crisis situations aren't necessarily working. I mean, we're 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 using consequences, we're using rewards, we're 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 imposing our our will, we're not collaborating. So some of the things that we're doing in in the education setting don't seem to be working. So how is the way that that hostage negotiators approach people in crisis different from what, you know, we're often doing in education? Well, I think the first thing that I noticed and the first thing that I really um appreciated about the interviews that I had was something that I have now called relocating the problem. And what negotiators do and very intentionally do is they change the way that they think and talk about the person who is in crisis. So whereas, you know, any one of us going into a, a negotiation like the ones that they go into might say that jerk with the sawed off shotgun and four hostages, you know, how can you possibly negotiate with a person like that? They don't do that. And they're very deliberate about that. They change the narrative and the way in which they do that is they reframe what the person is doing from that jerk in the, in the, uh, in the bank with the sawed off shotgun to just a person in a bad place. And they told me that they had to deliberately do that because if they didn't, any judgment that they felt would leak into the conversation. And they said, you know, maybe in schools, you know, it's not such a big deal to let your frustration or judgment or whatever leak into the conversation. But they said, if we do it, people die. The stakes are enormously high for us. So we must do this. And what I found was this group of incredibly humane and wonderful individuals who were able to do that. And, and I looked at that and I, I said to myself, like, would I be capable of making that shift? Um, and they said, if you don't do it, 
you might as well give up. Mm. And so, what? That's what, sorry, go ahead. No, keep going. No, it's okay. Uh, well, the, the comment I was going to make on that is that um, their comment that maybe you can get away with it in the schools. Well, what I, I would say, yeah, they get away with they, like I'm late, late labeling other people. Yes, we adults get away with it all the time, but we're not really getting away with something. We are doing great harm to right, the kids right, right. when we do that. Yeah. Well, you um, know, and, and again, thinking about high stakes, I mean, you know, I think about I think about the the trauma, injury, and even death from restrained seclusion. I think about oh, the school to prison yeah. pipeline. Yeah. I mean, the, the the stakes are really high when when the way you're dealing with conflict can lead a, a child down the road to end up in prison. Um, and you know, I think we've got to get that focus in in education that they these are high stakes. We've got to do better for kids for sure. And I got to say, I love the way they described it to you because what we often see is sacrificing the kids who are struggling for the good of everyone else. We have to use, in fact, the modules that are now out for Virginia just uh, passed their regs. They're finally passed restraint and seclusion regs, which a lot of us are not happy with. I'd say the regs should be, you don't ever do it, but <laughs> we're not there yet. But their, their five set module says that the DOE has said that schools should be safe environments where kids are able to feel safe and learn. And by uh, by implementing these regulations, we're making them that way. Are you kidding me? They are allowing restraint and seclusion and that's supposed to make it a safe environment. Well, it kind of comes back to safe, that you keep hearing the narrative of those kids, those kids who are out of control make it unsafe for everybody else. But if instead people took the mindset that you said the uh, hostage negotiators use, and put it to those kids. This is a child who is struggling. Um, we'd be far different. I interviewed students as part of this process and students told me overwhelmingly that they don't feel safe when kids are removed, other kids are removed. They don't feel safe when punitive measures are brought in. The kids, um, one, of, one of the young women said to me, I'm just a little bystander. But I, it's not right what they do. <laughs> yeah, and I don't feel safe anymore. <laughs> and I think we've we've got some research to back that as well, where where kids have said, you know, things to their parents when they go home. They've said, you know, what would I have to do to get kicked <laughs> out or to or to be locked in the closet? <laughs> One of the interesting points you made when when you talked about, um, you know, kind of that approach that negotiators take. Um, is kind of again realizing they're they're a, a person in a bad you know bad situation and that um, you, you know you kind of mentioned the the empathy has to be sincere that the people can kind of see through um, and, and you know that that kind of thing certainly happens in a lot of situations. Can you talk a little bit more about that the um, kind of the sincerity and empathy? Sure, and and that's that's a tough one. I mean, uh, Thompson and Jenkins in their book uh, Verbal Judo talk about this and say it's the ultimate communication challenge to remain um, supportive of someone when they're in a, a high stress situation, and that is certainly true. But again, what I heard overwhelmingly, I, you got to understand that. Um, Hostage negotiators come from a police background, and often they don't have the same educational um, uh, language or, or whatever. So they they when they said just a person in a bad place, that was one thing. But they also said things to me like, you know, I'm listening to this guy, 
and he's split up with his wife and she's not letting him see the kids or whatever's happening. And he's been living in the park. And he said, I'm looking at the guy. I'm thinking that shouldn't happen to a dog. And he says, so the empathy does build up as a result of the conversation. Now, one of the ways in which that happens is through a culture of listening and not telling. So the first thing a negotiator will say in a situation where they've been called in is, so how do we get here today? What happened? And then they shut up and listen. And they say, people will tell you, they'll tell you what happened for them. And whether you agree with it or not, that's what their reality of the situation is. And you listen and you listen. Because again, they told me, most of all, people just want to be heard. <laughs> I, I um, actually talked about a situation in the book where um, a woman in California actually did a, an impromptu negotiation, not trained in the slightest, just a lay person, um, Mary Linda Moss, who was in a Trader Joe's when some guy took hostages. And um, she wound up being the go-between between the SWAT team. They didn't have any hostage negotiators. They had the SWAT team and this guy. And she just continued to listen to him. And at the end of the whole thing, unfortunately, the police actually killed one person or shot one person at the very least. I can't remember. But anyway, Mary Linda Moss talked with this guy and, you know, talked to the police about what was going on with him. And at the end, when he had already surrendered, he said, you know what? I wish I'd met you sooner because all I really wanted to do was talk to someone. Right. Right. And that's what negotiators said to me over and over and over again. They say, really, you know, these situations are just situations where people have run out of hope. Mm -hmm. And our job is to just give them a little hope. Yeah. And so often when it comes to the school, you know, kids aren't kids aren't being listened to. They're, they're not being invited in to help solve problems. I mean, and I think about that, that uh, kind of that statement of, Hey, how do we get here today? And and you know, I think we mentioned this earlier when we were talking uh, another time, but about thing approaches like Dr. Ross Green with you know his his first step is the empathy step, and he yeah. starts out with the you know, um, hey, I see you're having difficulty with this. Um, what's up? And it's a very simple just invitation to to get someone talking and, and know that they're being heard. And it seems that that's very similar. Well, it's interesting because. I, I kind of came to the same conclusion even before I'd, I'd read Ross's books. And my take on that was it's the difference between what's up and smarten up. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. typically what we've done is smarten up and smarten up is a, um, the language of coercion. Whereas what's up is the language of, of um, curiosity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, can, can I tell you a story here? Absolutely. Sure. We were we were speaking at um, at a school in that shall remain nameless. And uh, <laughs> one of the things that my partner does is he does school assemblies and he talks to kids about disability issues. And anyway, we, we had finished that and, and the kids were great. They were middle school kids and younger. And we're walking down the hall and the principal's with us and she spots this little boy and he's walking down the hallway with a teacher. And she says, Jose come over here. I want you to meet Mr. Norman. And she says, now, Jose, you know, you heard Mr. Norman and he was talking about things that he's overcome, which wasn't exactly the message we were going for. But anyhow, um, she says, so you've been struggling in school and I think you could do better, right? And Jose's looking at the ground and we're feeling a little <laughs> uncomfortable. And so he says, yeah. 
And so she sends him off. And then we go to the library and we do a presentation where I talk about my research and the difference between what's up and smarten up. And that evening we were supposed to do something for parents. And um, the principal comes in and she's crying. And I think, uh-oh, <laughs> this can't be good. And she says, no, 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 no. I listened to what you said and I thought about Jose. And she said, I brought him into the office and I sat him down, knee to knee, eye to eye. And I said, Jose, what's up? She said, and he told me. She said his mother had just left the family and she had just come back about a week ago and said that she was never going to see the kids again. And Jose said, so I just sit here and look at the wall and think about how I'm never going to see my mommy mm. again. And she said, she was crying and she said, I, you know, she said, I think I'm doing a good job. And heaven knows she was. She's really doing things to promote belonging and acceptance in her school. But she said, you know, I don't think to ask those questions. In fact, she says, maybe I don't even ask any questions at all. I just try to get things settled. Mm -hmm. And then she said, but it gets better. One of my teachers came in and she was so frustrated about this kid in her class that she's been struggling with all year. And so I said to her, go in and sit down and ask him what's up teacher comes back she's crying she says you know he told me about his life he's getting beat up by his father she says he lives in the neighborhood i grew up in which was very socioeconomically depressed she says he's talking about my life and it just was that easy you know when i was learning conflict processes people talked about powerful questions and I used to go, oh, what's that? You know, that sounds really complicated. How am I going to learn how to do that? But the most, the best powerful questions are often the simple ones. Like, what's up? How do we get here today? And then stopping to listen. The, the New York City Police Department, a hostage negotiation team, of which Dominic Messino was the, the head, he, he said to me, our motto, and I borrowed this from my book, shamelessly, <laughs> is... <laughs> And he says, it's with very good reason that we don't say, listen to me. It's talk to me. And not everyone talks in the same way. You know, some people don't use words and we still have to learn how to listen to that. Or if they come at it in different ways, you know, kids will often come at things really circuitously. So, you know, you, you kind of talk about how, uh, you know, kind of having that initial empathy and, 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 you know, opening up the conversation to be listening um, and, and reading through your book. Um, I was learning a lot about really what you meant by listening, because, you know, we're, we're not just talking about being, you know, letting somebody ramble on without paying attention, but can you, right. can you talk a little bit about, you know, how hostage negotiators listen and, and what's important about that process? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm going to refer to my cheat sheets if that's okay. Absolutely. I'm autistic. I script. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the whole idea of listening is, um, again, you know, talk to me. I, I'm going to listen. Don't listen to me. And one of the things that I discovered in this process um, was a guy named James Lynch. And James Lynch was a cardiologist. And he looked at how physiology and listening are, are connected. And he said, when you listen, your heart rate goes down, your blood pressure decreases, all of this stuff happens. And so listening is actually a very potent de-escalator. 
it's a potent de-escalator for us because really if there are ledges to be talked off in this it's often us as the adults in the situation who need to talk ourselves off the ledges as much as we need to think about the kids and so he he did all these studies on on listening and he said you know asking a question is a form of listening because when we're asked a question, we have to shift from the, the, the subcortex to this part of our brains. And that automatically begins to deescalate us. So answering a question is also a form of listening. I found that fascinating. So they do a lot of that. And they talked a lot about that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and, and I know you also mentioned like active listening and, and things that mm -hmm. you can do, and and how might some of those things translate to a to a you know teacher and educator working with a student? I think all of those skills can be learned and taught. I certainly learned them when I was um, studying mediation and negotiation, and I think active listening is is a good thing. And negotiators said that they relied on it a lot too, with a caveat. And the caveat is this, that anything that you do that is designed to make another person do what you want them to do without them knowing that you're doing it to them is automatically suspect. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, I think every one of us have been to some or have known somebody who goes to one of those courses and they come back and they say, so what I hear you saying is, and we feel manipulated right, right. and we feel patronized and we don't feel heard. So um, I, I mentioned in the book that my husband did a master's in, in family therapy. And one of his instructors said, it's kind of like when people come at you and their skills are out in front of them and you feel like it's a barricade in front of you. And um, what we try to do is make sure that our skills are behind us. Yes, we may need to use them and they're not magic bullets. Active listening and negotiators told me this over and over again. Yeah, yeah, that's great. But they're not magic bullets. Sometimes they absolutely don't work. And when we become reliant on models, I think we stop noticing what's going on around us. So I'm very cautious about active listening. I, I learned it. I taught it. Um, great. And it's not always the thing to do. <laughs> the authenticity is really the important piece that you mentioned earlier, Guy. Mm -hmm. so that authenticity is is the piece that matters the most. So when I when I think about all the things you said so far, and I think about adults who are trying to, they've got a child who um, is having a conflict. Um, they, I would think this may be me, but I think it's also true for other people. Is that you can easily get yourself worked up into this mindset of I'm responsible, I'm accountable, I have to get this, I've got this whole classroom, I have to get this under control. And then if you are relying, so that's one thing, your own fear and your own self expectations get in the way of your authenticity and of your being able to just be there with the kiddo. The other thing I think about is with the, the listening, and I think this is true no matter what the skill is, but when you start learning it, you're not very good at it. But you can easily, with the active listening or, or whatever kind of thing, um, get so caught up in what am I supposed to do next? Okay, you told me this. This is this. instead of feeling, feeling what is being said 
and yeah. being able to respond without worry about did I respond right or not? Being, being, there. Yeah, being there with the person. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I learned from negotiators was something called dynamic inactivity which I found fascinating and um, something I hadn't heard in any other conflict resolution, um, anything. And what that, the way that they uh, put that forward was you got to go slow to go fast. Mm -hmm. And they talked about listening and um, not that the overwhelming desire is to do something, make yes. it stop. Mm -hmm. And they said, sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. So Alfie Cohn was my advisor and, and a dear friend um, while I was doing this, this research. And when I told him about that, he said, oh, that reminds me of a bumper sticker I saw the other day. It said, don't just do something, stand there. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and, and that is what, and, and dynamic activity doesn't mean just standing there like a deer caught in the headlights. It means that you're noticing, you're thinking, and you're, you're there with the person. And I think it's a terrible position for a lot of educators to be in where they're expected to deal with it and deal with it fast. And a lot of us are, are employed because of our problem solving skills, or at least we're employed because we're expected to have those. And that makes it even more difficult. And I have every amount of empathy for educators who find themselves in that situation. Something's blowing up and then, you know, what, what do I do? And over and over in, you know, the educator um, literature, it's like, what do I do on Monday? Just don't tell me all this philosophical stuff. Just tell me what to do on Monday. And I get it. And it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. so no model is going to give you what empathetic listening and curiosity does. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a question for you, but before I get to that, we, we've had a lot of comments that have been coming up in, in the stream as we've been talking, uh, but just had a question here from actually our own our own, our own Jennifer uh, Linton, who's part of our team here, and, and she's made comments on a couple of things you've said about, uh, you know, making things for our, our Facebook page off the, the some of the, the uh, really great words and ideas that you've had. But she asked if you have any suggestions for translating kind of that idea of what's up for a non-speaking child. Sure. Um, and, and I think, you know, this is a, a complex issue because uh, like a lot of educators have said, well, I just don't have time. But, you know, what we need to do is learn how to read the people that were around and people communicate. It doesn't matter whether you speak or don't speak. And we need to learn how to read those things. Um, a friend of mine, Dave Hingsberger, has done a lot of work around creating books of um, various kinds of, of, of physiological responses to things and making sure that teachers and support staff have access to those. And he told a story at one point about a man who had had support workers his entire life. This is an adult person and he didn't speak, but he had a lot of ways of letting people who were close to him know what was going on. For example, you know, something like a, a shoulder shrug or whatever. And they compiled a book of all of these things. And so on this one day, one of the support workers came in and she had seen this book and read it and really taken it to heart. And he did one of those things and she said, you're thirsty. And he burst into tears. And the thing was, when it all came down, it was like, I don't have to train yet another person 
to understand what it is I'm trying to say. So we can do things like that. We also need to understand that no matter who you are, whether you speak or don't speak, um, kids often come at things sideways. A story that I told in the book was about a friend of mine who was an itinerant art teacher who went into a school and was working with a child who drew a really, really disturbing picture of um, a house in very, very waxy black crayon and, and a lot of smoke coming out of the chimney and a little stick figure. And so they, they asked him about that and he said, my dad just blew up. Now he could speak, but this wasn't coming out in, in a way that anyone thought they had in any idea of understanding. And so of course, like many of us, they went, oh my God, there must be abuse in this, in this child's home. And um, with a little detective work, what they found out was that again, this, this child's father had left the home and this was his way of conceptualizing that. So kids will often tell us things in ways that are not about clearly understood spoken language. And, and I think that the whole idea of, I, I love the fact that the person who, who asked the question said non-speaking as opposed to non-verbal, which is a phrase that many of us take very badly. There's no such thing as non-verbal. People communicate. And it's up to us to figure out how they do that and to work with their families and the people who are closest to them to figure out what that might mean. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So, you know, I want to I want to circle back to kind of the whole idea of relationship. So, you know, one of the things that we often hear um, kind of in the in the classroom is I've got, you know, these 25 kids, I don't have time to form a relationship. Um, and of course, I would say you don't have time not to form a relationship. But, but you know, um, when we're talking about negotiators, um, they've got to go in and form a relationship very, very quickly. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, one, the importance of relationship and, and two, how negotiators um, go about that work? Sure. Um, yeah, that, that was something that I, I was probably the most interested in because you keep hearing that, you know, I don't have time to form those relationships, especially in high school where, you know, kids are cycling in and out of classrooms and you don't have a lot of time. And I accept that, except that negotiators have to create a bond, not just a relationship, but a bond with an upset person, with a potentially suicidal or homicidal person. And they say within the first 20 minutes. And the way that they do that, again, is with listening and you know that that question so how did we get here today and working with the person that way and um i found that fascinating now another thing that i ran into was something in my in my research called a, the two by ten study and that was a guy named raymond Rutkowski who was very surprised that I called him because he said, this is 20 years old. I can't believe anyone's still interested in it. But he did a study where he went to educators and he said, okay, pick the kid in your class who gives you the most trouble. And for two minutes a day, just sit down with that kid and ask them questions about their life and listen to them. So he came back 10 days, two minutes a day. Okay, that's what he did. Came back after the 10 days and what he expected to see that was that kids really enjoyed this, and they did. But what he was most surprised to see was how much the adults had changed and how much they appreciated. And in many instances, those kids became their favorite kids. Now, I am going to provide a caveat. My friend, Cal Montgomery, who is an autistic 
activist, um, said to me, great, but don't use kids as a way of testing out whether this works. Because if you're only going to do it for 10 days, imagine what that means to a kid who possibly has never been listened to in their entire lives. <laughs> and, you know, now you've done this and then you stop. How cynical would that make a person about relationships? So my caveat is this must never be used as a, a quick fix or a way to just try something out. We, if, if we're committed to actually listening to kids, we actually have to listen to them. So I took Kel's words very much to heart. And that's back to the point yeah. that relationships have to be authentic. Yes. Yes. And the thing that I think about, um, it makes me think about some of Lori DeSaltis' work, DeSaltis' work, is that <clears throat> you're doing, if you do this like every morning when the, when the kids come in or you, have, you sparse it through the day with all the kids, every time you do that, you're doing... Um, a regulatory activity, really, for both of you. You're co-regulating. And, and that, to me, is the best uh, preventative structure. So much better than de-escalating. Yeah. This is a, a co-regulating um, strategy. Yeah, and I heard a lot about that from educators as well as hostage negotiators. Um, Bernard Gassaway, who actually was um, the principal of, of one, not one, but many, of the more difficult schools in, in Bedford Stuyvesant and a, and a number of other places talked about that. And he said, you know, when I came into this school that was posited as being the most difficult school anywhere, and did I really want to do this? He said, what I did was I stood in the door and every morning I said, good morning to every child who came in the door. And there were like 2000 kids. And he said, you know, I realized I was getting somewhere because I went from, maybe 20% of the kids would say good morning back to about 80%. And he said, you know, that's when I knew I was getting somewhere with creating that kind of a relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and those things like another teacher that we met in Alaska um, said she was called, she actually was working in central office and she was called in to do some work um, subbing for a teacher who was on maternity leave. And she said, I was delighted. I couldn't wait to get back to the classroom. And she, she got this reputation of being the teacher who could resolve everything. And no matter what happened on the schoolyard, you know, fights, everything, she could break them up. So the teachers were going, well, what are you doing that's different than what we're doing? And she said, well, you haven't filled the bucket. And they went, uh, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, you know, I've been spending a lot of time getting to know these kids. So I know that Bill likes BMX bikes and I know that Ron likes, you know, Magic the Gathering cards. And I talk with them about those things. And so when it comes time for me to intervene, I've got water in my bucket, my metaphorical bucket. We have a relationship. So I, when I say, Bill, you know, what are you doing? He'll listen to me. And she says, it's not your fault, but you just haven't put enough water in the bucket. Yeah, and I, absolutely. Telling metaphor. Which is, and it brings me to the, the thing about I don't have time, because the way I look at it, it's the same thing as, as paying for early intervention. We don't have enough money, we have to give it to these. You either pay now or you pay later. You invest the time now in Front good relationships. Loaded. Say what? Front end loaded. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah, well, you know, and Beth, this brings me back to my, my three R's of education, which are relationship, relationship, relationship. Uh, you know, it, it's so critical. And and I mean, the, the stories, the stories in your book and the story you just shared with us really, really show that, that, that you know, kids want to do well for the people that they like and that, that respect mm-hmm. them and that treat yeah. them with dignity. Um, so, so transitioning from that kind of relationship piece, one of the other, I guess, really important pieces is what you were talking about. And you've got a chapter on this about kind of Mm self-management. You know, we know that a dysregulated adult cannot help to help a kid to regulate. So so can you talk a little bit about the importance of kind of that self-management piece as it comes from both negotiators and to teachers? Yeah. And, and again, um, negotiators said that is the critical piece. And they said they won't hire people who can't do that. And they, they really spend a lot of time thinking about how you, what is your self-talk, you know, and knowing your own triggers so that you know what sets you off so you can decide in advance how you're going to respond. Um, the, other, the other piece of that that I think is really worth talking about is something I learned not from negotiators, but elsewhere from somebody I interviewed who was actually working in a um, in another school situation. And he said, people will try to make you feel the way they're feeling. And that's really one of the, the critical ways of um, getting your foot in the door, so to speak. So what we tend to do is if we see somebody having a difficult day, we think, well, they're on a power trip. They're trying to exert power over me. When in fact, probably what's going on is that person is feeling powerless. Now, if you are in a situation where you feel threatened, you're likely to feel powerless. That's your best clue for how someone else feels. And this guy said, you know, I was in a situation where I was called in to a guy who had gotten hold of a piece of two by four and was running around and they'd they'd locked him into some kind of a timeout room. And he was like, slamming on the floor. I was worried about him hurting himself. And I was certainly worried about going in there myself. And so he said, I stood at the door and I said, you know what? I'm kind of scared here. And I got a feeling maybe you are too. And I'd really like to talk. And within a few minutes, the guy calmed down and he was able to go in there. And people were talking about psychotropic medications and all sorts of other things. And, you know, like four point restraints and what are we going to do? None of that was needed. And I'm not trying to say that any of this is a magic bullet, but I am trying to say that we don't typically do those things. Ron Garrison, who I've interviewed and is in the back of the book as well on restraint and seclusion, is a person who has been an expert witness in more than 85 cases um, over his career. And he says what he notices is that when people intervene in difficult situations, it's usually part of a fight. He says, we would think that people are being rational and just, you know, like, okay, then that's the next thing we need to do. They're not. It's adrenaline fueled. And I think what we've seen in recent days with um, Jacob, who has been shot in the back seven times with George Floyd, is that what we're seeing is that it's adrenaline fueled. And when people get into that situation, they react. And that's the same in schools with restraint and seclusion. Ron talks about how many people he's had to um, go into court and talk about who have killed people, killed kids. 
by by leaning on them by you know the the, the knee and the neck the the knee on the chest and he says just about never is it um a thought through process it's the result of a fight right 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 and people feeling threatened so i want to ask you because we're sort of on that subject um a little bit uh, in your epilogue, <laughs> you talked about the um, Safe School Initiative and the 2008 uh, bystander report. Yes. Um, so could you tell a little bit about that, the findings yeah. of those two things? Yeah. yeah. And, th and then I yeah. that, oh, I, that's I one where I have six. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have it here. And um, it, it was fascinating because for years I would go around and talk about this. And I would ask teachers, how many of you have seen this document? And almost unilaterally, teachers would say, mm -mm, never seen it. And it's been around forever. So again, um, here's what they came up with. OK, first of all, um, in situations of, of uh, school shootings, of all of this stuff, th this came about after Columbine, just to put mm -hmm. it into perspective. Yeah. They decided that the assessment what needed to happen was assessment of the school's emotional climate, emphasis on the importance of listening in schools, adoption of a strong but caring stance against the code of silence, prevention of and intervention in bullying, involvement of all members in the school community in planning, creating and sustaining a school culture of safety and respect development of trusting relationships between each student and at least one adult mm -hmm. in the school and the creation of mechanisms for developing and sustaining safe school climates you will note that there is not a metal detector an armed guard facial recognition um any of it in this mm -hmm. stuff and and you know i i don't think that people have actually paid attention to what they suggested. And I, I find that fascinating that there are no suggestions for more hardline zero tolerance approaches. Yeah, I try to, uh, to um, maybe the negotiators can help us with that. I try to think about that and it almost feels like it's, it's the, I mean, it's all part of the zero tolerance and all part of the get tough on crime, get right. tough on discipline, get tough on this, as though the sitting back, the dynamic, what was the word you the used? Yeah, is, is you can't, that can't even come into people's minds. They're so, we are so accustomed to fixing things and to fixing by doing, um, that is it just that our minds aren't big enough or we haven't seen it or we don't, it's introduced or, to read one report. Go or, ahead. Yeah. Or we're in situations where that's the mandate. And yes. I really feel for teachers who yes. are having to operate, wanting to do more relational things in an environment of zero tolerance. How do yes. you reconcile those things? And I think teachers have been in the crossfire of this debate forever. And yes. I really want to say, you know, that um, while I, I support all of this stuff. I definitely empathize with how difficult that is when you are expected to do all of the steps in zero tolerance. And I mean, we've mm -hmm. seen some of the most bizarre things. Kids kicked out of school for having a chain on their Mickey Mouse wallets or carrying a, a plastic butter knife to school. Wrong color socks. 
Yeah, the wrong colored socks. Or, I or think they, that kid was arrested. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, bizarre. It yeah. It and so how yeah. are you supposed to reconcile those things? And I think that's really been true for, for educators caught mm. in the crossfire of very, very different ideological ways of coming at this stuff. Yeah, you know, I've, I've talked to school administrators and I've talked to teachers and and, and you, you actually sometimes hear it from from different sides. You know, I've heard administrators that want to want to focus on a culture of, of building relationships and trusts and and, yeah. and and working away from exclusionary discipline who find that they have teachers that don't want to do that. They want to send them to the principal to be expelled or suspended. Uh, yeah. And, and then, then I've heard the other story from teachers that have the administration like you spoke about. So, I mean, I think it happens on all level. And, and, you know, I've, I've talked to teachers that, um, you know, have wanted to bring about positive change, but the culture is such in their schools that they have a really difficult time doing that and, and have even been, um, you know, uh, threatened or, or, or had consequences to, to speaking out against some of these things. And, and that's a big thing, culture, culture within school systems. I mean, you know, I look at restraint and seclusion numbers across say my state and, and why is it so much more, why is it used so much more in one you know, district than another? A lot of it goes back to kind of the culture of the school and the way that they're looking at some of these problems. Yeah. Uh, over the years, you know, my partner, Norm, and I get asked, you know, well, well, are things better in Canada? Or, you know, have you run into places where this is really great? And we say, it's always one place at a time, one administrator at a time, one school team at a time. Um, there's no such thing as as a whole group of people have done this better. It's a, a lot of it is leadership and it's culture. Yeah, right. we, we, we just had a question pop up that, um, you know, I'll, I'll throw to you and, and see what your thoughts are. But it was how do you feel about uh, SROs in schools, so school resource officers? And I don't know how familiar you are with what's going on in the United States. But, you know, do you think they can be trained to stop arresting and policing children or do you think they should be eliminated from schools? Do you see uh, you seem to have a strong relationship with police? So I'm curious on your take on this issue. Well, I, I need to say, first of all, that I don't have a strong relationship with police necessarily. I mean, I think I am just as outraged as anybody about what's happening in Black Lives Matter. And there's a lot of stuff that I think needs to change. The arm of, of law enforcement that I talk to are very, very, very different. They have a very different approach to this. So I want to say that right out of the gate. Um, but um, as far as liaison police, I don't know. Uh, I worry about it, to be mm -hmm, truthful. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it's a step in a punitive direction. Unfortunately, what we've seen are police who go through with sniffer dogs and and uh, go through kids' lockers. And, you know, quite honestly, they're never going to keep up with anything anyway. Like what we what I kept hearing from kids is, you know, we can get stuff into the school if we want to. Like, mm -hmm. they're not going to stop us. Yeah, you got metal detectors and armed guards. And you know what? You got a huge playing field out there. And I can, you know, sift something in through the window in five minutes and hide it. Never mind your clear plastic backpacks and all the rest of it. So all of these things, I think, are flails. They're, they're flails to try to get on top of this. And often they are fueled by the... Um, by what the community thinks it wants and the panic that communities get into. You know, when you think about the issue of school shooters, which of course is, is something to think about. Um, and, you know, I understand people's consternation, but the answers that we're coming at it with 
are, you know, to lock down more stuff. We've got a ton of research out there. Mm -hmm. Skiba and Peterson and all kinds mm -hmm. of people have done tons of research on how making schools more like prisons uh, is never going to actually do anything. And, and we know that we can't even control those things in prisons, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and here, Go here's ahead. the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing that I've seen is I've seen all those reports that, that there have been some extensive things that showed that schools with SROs versus schools without SROs, it was this, they, it didn't make a difference in terms of school shootings. There have been enough school shootings to be able to have that research. The other thing that I, I have seen a number of times is the research on how people change their minds and people uh, I, I get so frustrated with this because we have such good data about what works and what doesn't work. And yet we continue to have the people demanding uh, zero tolerance and strict discipline and all those kinds of things. So the latest thing that I was reading was talking about really the only way you're going to change people's mind is through a relationship. They're going to listen to you. People who, who listen to you, who care about you, will open up to hear what you have to say, unless you care about them and you scream at them and tell them whatever. But it's through good relationships that people's minds are changed, not through facts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the strong arm tactics are not working. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Yeah. You know, the, the approaches we often see in our schools mimic what we see out in, in the world in terms of looking at some of these policing situations with, you know, kind of this compliance based approach versus, you know, compassion and, and working with people. And, you know, a lot of the um, approaches that are still very common in our schools that are rooted in behaviorism that that want to look at kids as being attention seeking or, you know, object seeking or, you know, a, a, you know, avoiding or whatever it may be, these these classical kind of functions of behavior. Um, you know, really, again, involve this solution process that doesn't even involve a kid. Um, so I'm kind of curious about kind of your your take on, you know, these things that you've learned through hostage negotiators and conflict management and, and how we can move from these kind of behaviorism approaches to kind of more person-centered approaches. Well, you know, when you think about it, hey, like a lot of these behaviorist, behavioristic approaches are very simplistic. Mm -hmm. They rely on a on a cynical and simplistic view of human behavior. You're either doing something to get something or doing something to avoid something. Right, right. Whereas I think anyone who knows more about that or thinks more about it, even from their own perspective in their own lives, understands that we do things for a lot of reasons. We do things because it's resistance. Um, I think it was Susan B. Anthony who said that a resistance to oppression is obedience to God. And, um, you know, resistance has a long tradition of being um, something worthwhile when, when we need to resist something. And people will. People will die for identity claims. And we also know that there are medical issues. Our friend Ruth Myers, who is a psychiatrist and a medical doctor and has consulted on 7,000 cases of disruptive behavior, Mm -hmm. says that in almost all of them, there was a medical underlying issue. And we know that people do things because they have involuntary movements. A lot of my friends who are autistic talk about living in bodies with minds of their own. You know, I don't want to do this, but it's happening to me. And I'm, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's anxiety or whatever it is, I'm, I'm, moving in ways that people are not appreciative of, and I don't think I can stop it. 
I'll never forget when my son was young, he used to say, my brain made me do, do it. And, and, and really, you know, I mean, that was his, his interpretation uh, of that. Yeah. But, but, you know, yeah, you're right. And, and very often, you know, we're, we're developing these behavior plans without, you know, without actually working with kids and without, you know, yeah. um, working on the relationship. And, um, you know, we, we see the results of those that often end very badly. Can I tell well, you? Behavior? Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. We love well, stories. My, my friend, Pat Amos, um, is the the parent of uh, four adult children, which I always say is an oxymoron that only a parent is allowed to use, adult children. But anyway, <laughs> three of whom she says are accused of being autistic. And she tells a story about her her second daughter in, in second grade. And she said um, her daughter would routinely, uh, her daughter who was labeled as autistic, would routinely get up in the middle of class and run out of the room. And so then the teacher would follow her and the principal would come out of his office and he would follow and sometimes the janitor would follow and soon there would be this long trail of people following this little kid. And she would invariably go to the cafeteria because she could hide under the tables because she was little, right? And they couldn't get her. So she would be doing this and eventually someone would come and get her and they'd haul her out and she'd be, you know, snot covered and dusty and, and then they'd call Pat and they'd say, you know, is this yours? Did you did you lose this? And she would come in, take her home, clean her up and try to figure out what was going on. And she said, you know, I would go back to the school and I would say, um, so why do you think she's doing this? And teachers would invariably say the same thing. They would say, well, she's doing it to get out of work or she's doing it for attention. And Pat would say, well, you know, she seems to be crying. I'm not sure that this holds. And anyway, they, they would set up all these little point systems to try to keep her in her seat and, you know, make that okay for her. And nothing was working. So finally, Pat goes in and she says, well, why don't you ask her? And she right, said, right. never ask. And so they sat down and said, honey, why do you run? And she said, and this, this will relate to what you said, Guy. She said, my brain doesn't tell my legs what to do. My legs tell my brain what to do. And Pat said, that is the perfect description of motor driven behavior. It was out of her control. And she said, if there's one thing you can say about this, it's probably about anxiety. So what they did, she said, you know, at that time, um, that was quite a while ago, they, they would do behavior plans that were a little different than the ones we have now. And she said, she sat down with them and said, so what should we do? And the teacher said, well, we'll, we'll put her on another one of those point and level systems. And she said, oh. so she said, why don't we try this? And she said, it was like the, the most bizarre thing, like, oh, this hasn't been tried in the history of humankind. Why don't we just let her leave the room when she needs to leave the room? what any of the rest of us would do. So um, they said, okay, this is your new plan. If you agree to it, they brought her in. And so anytime you need to leave the room, you can, and here's where you can go. And they, I think they had the library, the office and somewhere else. And, and as Pat would like to say, three fine upstanding women who would give her something to do or a book to read or whatever. And when she was ready, she could go back to the class. So they said this and, and, she, and Pat said, so is this okay with you? And she went, mm-hmm. She never had to do it again. It never happened again. And, Pat, and everyone was amazed. Yeah. Like, what? And she said, no. She said, we typically take power away from children 
and husband it to ourselves. Those are her words. And um, we never think that children are often feeling like they're, they have no control over their lives. They have no way of, of managing this. So she says, my guess is that she was sitting in the chair and going, I got to leave. I got to leave. I got to leave. I got Oh, wait, I can. Okay. I'll give it another five minutes. Yeah. Isn't it amazing what happens when we listen? You know, mm. um, you know, unfortunately, my, my son was one that would become overwhelmed and elope and that elopement led to him being restrained and secluded. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the trauma that that caused for for he and our family was was tremendous. Um, you know, so I, I that story is, is I, I heard you, you know, recounting that and had read that in the book, um, you know, really, really resonated with me. And it's just the, the importance of listening. The importance of working with kids and not doing things to kids. Well, and the other, the other thing that I see is the, uh, I'm going to introduce the, um, well, now I forget what it's called. Oh, the platinum rule, as opposed to the golden rule. The golden rule, <laughs> do unto others what you would have them do unto you. To me, the platinum is do unto others as they would have you do unto them, which respects people who think differently and who need different things than we need. And so too much of what happens in organizations is we forget that not everybody is like us. I don't know why we forget that. It's so obvious, but we make the rules around what we, what makes sense to us, not recognizing all these physiological and uh, mental and emotional differences. Yeah, well, we, we just got a comment kind of that relates to that from, from Jennifer Abinette about her girls have to rats and it's not understood that they are told to sit still when they can't. Uh, in fact, the movement helps them to pay more attention, but that's not what teachers think. They think they're not paying attention. We do a lot of educating every school year um, or eyes on me to show that you're paying attention. It's not the case for many. And, and yeah, I, I remember having that same uh, revelation at one point. It's like, my my son can listen to 12 things while not looking like he's paying attention to anyone and, and recite it all back to you. But we, we build this model of what the expectations are and, and, you know, um, and, and that's, I think some of the concerns that I have with a lot of the behavior, you know, the compliance based approaches is we, you know, there, there are things about people that are okay. They're part of who they are. And, and, you know, we try to, um, you know, uh, you know, offer them, you know, norm, normalize them, uh, to some standard. And and then we hear, oh, well, they're disrupting the other kids. Well, have we even talked to the right, other kids? Right. Because yeah. kids are often much more accepting than we give them credit for. Kids understand that, that people need different things. Yeah. And very often, if you talk with kids, they're, they're fine with all of that, you know? And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have been in situations where I'm doing workshops or um, other kinds of in-service things where there's people in the back of the room that are moving around and doing stuff. And I always um, give a nod out to them because you don't have to sit still and listen to me. I know because of the way I work in the world that I can sit like your son does and, and listen to things without having to look at them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, but we assume that, that those are, those are the markers of attention and, it's really dangerous to assume right. that that's the only way that people operate in the world. And I, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, and shouldn't there be teachable moments for, for other children to accept others for, for being different? Yeah. You know, isn't that the way we're going to function in our workplaces and in right. other 
yeah. situations as right. we go along. Like, I mean, really the lockstep way in which a lot of education has been posited is, you know, based on the, on the 19th century idea of sit down, shut up and listen to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's even based on, go ahead. It's even, it's even based on some of the idea that you need, kids need to know structure and what the expect, expectations are. That's a part of the PBIS mode. But what happens with that is I do think kids need to know what to expect. But sure. what happens is the structure gets treated as though it is uh, absolute. So the kid's not walking straight down the hall. When we made our three rules in the beginning of the year, that safe behavior is walking straight down the hall. It, it, yeah. The idea made sense that you have structure and expectations, but it got warped. And I guess it's rules. Further well, rules. supposedly they're made with the students and the teacher together. But even if you said that and you said you have a class of 30 kids and 16 of them say, this makes me feel safe. You got 14 who may not feel safe that way. You know, I think we've got to be more flexible. We're so rigid. Al Alfie Cohn talks about that. He says, you know, in, in the discussions that he's had with kids and that, that he's seen others have with kids, they're often harder on themselves than we would be. Oh, yeah. And, and that gives you some other place to go with it rather than going, OK, fine, then we'll adopt that rule. OK, what about that rule? Does that rule work for everyone? Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of democratic classrooms, you know, how do we actually involve kids? in thinking about those things and noticing those differences how do we talk about it yeah or, or even principles of universal design that can that can accommodate everyone you know how do we how do we make better classrooms jennifer brought up uh, jennifer avanet again brought up kind of the point that piggybacks on this i believe it's time to completely change the model for education <laughs> considering it hasn't been uh, changed and evolved in over 100 years it's past time agreed agreed yeah, yeah. And, well said. and i I think about a story that uh, Bruce Perry has in his book, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, and other stories, <laughs> um, where there was a child that was just having such a difficult time adapting. He'd had such um, unattachment, that's not the right word, but he had the, his, his early years were um, very uh, disruptive. Disruptive for him, he wasn't disruptive. He didn't have the connection you need, and he, decided just to try uh, to sit down with the class and explain a little bit about how the brain works. And I think it was like a second grade class. And what what he saw happen was these kids who had been bullying this, this boy because he didn't know how to interact. They, having this knowledge now, it built a connection between them and they became his supporters. And his um, and and I I also was at a um, early intervention training I guess it was early childhood training where um, kids with autism were included in in a class maybe it's just one child and um, the speaker talked about how um, someone asked uh, what's the cure for this and the other kid said we're the cure <laughs> they, they, it was like. I know we don't talk about cures because it's not a disease or a disorder. This was 10 or right, 15 years right. ago. But the point of it was they didn't see this as a problem. They saw this as he needs to do this a different way. We support him. That's uh, not, yeah. Uh, we just have to have different mindsets. I, I would have a, a caveat to that. Um, 
because I've seen it done well and I've seen it done really badly mm -hmm. um, where, where people draw attention to the child and talk about that child. And, you know, it, it devolves into something like we should all be nice to disabled people. Mm. Yes. And that is like more stigmatizing than anything. And, and disabled people will tell you that it is easier to be ignored and bullied than it is to be the class project. So we have to be really careful how that gets done. And one of the ways that Norm and I have had of talking about that is posit it as the school's problem. We don't know yes. how to respond here. Um, and we're trying to learn rather than, you know, this is a kid with a whatever it is. So just that, that's my caveat. And, and well, and I and what you're saying is I see it with my granddaughters who were um, both in middle school talking about how, in fact, my granddaughter, who is autistic, went with me to D.C. for uh, advocating for Hill Day. Um, and she told the uh, our senator that, well, actually his aide, that the other kids treat kids with disabilities like pets. They don't treat them like humans, and, which I thought was so interesting. It was, I mean, it was just a beautiful moment. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what they see. Uh, when kids are treated like objects that you need to be nice to them. And these two examples were completely different from that. But I hear exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He talks about that. He says that PBIS ought to be renamed TKLP, treating kids like pets. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, so I just want to uh, break in real quick and, and we pr probably about 10 more minutes left. Uh, we're a little before five o'clock. Um, so if people have questions, um, no, we're they're watching. We're before two. What's that? <laughs> I said, no, we're not. We're just before two. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I, I need my, 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 my world clocks, easy. right? I, I'm only seeing the world from my perspective here. So how about we, we have nine minutes left before we're at whatever time you may be at. Um, but I had a, a question came up. So if anybody has questions, feel free to, or comments, feel free to put those in the chat and we'll try to get some more of those. And Beth, I'm sure you have a few more questions. Uh, Tamara had asked, she said that she, she joined late and just wanted to let her know, uh, the, the name of your book, uh, is talk to me. There we go. We're, we're, we're all showing you copies. Beth is upside down, but that's okay. Um, but she also asked a great question, which is. You're not is, having a Trumpian moment, are you? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll hold our book. Um, so the, the question was, can you recommend other resources, books, podcasts, websites? So what other resources would you recommend? I would absolutely re recommend Alfie Cohn's website and books. And that is Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N. And that's A-L-F-I-E, alfiecohn.org. And you will find so much stuff. Alfie's been so instrumental in my in my understanding of all this stuff. Also, Ross Green's books are excellent. Other people that you've interviewed on this site, um, absolutely. Um, let's see what else. Oh yeah, um, there's a um, uh, a YouTube channel uh, with our our friend and colleague Amethyst Shaber called Ask an Autistic, hmm. and Amethyst is just fabulous. They are incredible. So look at their their website. Can, can you also tell us a little bit more about Broadreach training? Oh, sure. Well, that's my partner, Norm, and me. And um, we've done in-service and training on disability issues primarily. My, my partner has cerebral palsy, 
and I'm autistic. And we have gone all over the world doing presentations. So some of those presentations are online. Some of our written stuff is online and anything that's there, people are welcome to use. And uh, we, we invite them there. It's called broadreachtraining.com. And I just shared that link also in the oh, comments. Great. Thanks. Uh, we also had a, uh, a comment here from Alex that said, you should really do a hey, session Alex. like this uh, for Nova Scotia educators. Um, there's a lot who really need to hear what you're saying. And, and Alex, I want to let you know, too, that these are all being recorded. Uh, so they will be available. And I always encourage people in our audience because we have so many amazing uh, speakers that have come out to, to talk to us about their work um, is please share these with your teams, with your with your whether it's your IP team or your your, your teachers, um, if you're teachers, because we have a lot of teachers in our audience as well, um, share them share them the other direction. Share them with uh, your parents. Um, you know, I think we can do a lot of good by getting more of this information out there uh, to people. So please, 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 um, you know, share the links. And and I just want to let Alex know we actually know each other. Um, <laughs> um, let Alex know that um, our our other website, Norm and I have a training uh, platform called Conversations That Matter has just been rolled out to 11 different campuses in Nova Scotia, which is new for us. And we're really excited about that. Can, so can you tell us a little you. bit more about Conversations That Matter? I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Conversations That Matter is a, a training platform that Norm and I put together. Um, and it is essentially a series of interviewer, interviews with um, all kinds of people from all over around disability issues, around educational issues, um, that relate to disability. And um, we we basically, because of the work that we've done over the years, we got to know just about everybody who was on the speaker circuit. So at a certain point, we called them all up and said, can we just do interviews with you? And we'll put those on a website and make it available for people. So it is on a subscription basis. It's It's cheap, 20 bucks a year. And um, basically it's organizations that provide services for adults and children with disabilities and a lot of colleges and universities now. So that's my little Fabulous. <laughs> Yeah. And Alex followed Alex, up and asked. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so I just want to clarify Nova Scotia is the one that's up above us, right? Yeah. As opposed to over on the West Coast. Land, to your North. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had that's interesting conversations about time zones yesterday and <laughs> Tried to tell her what time zone she was in. That's it. I mean, I, I'm so embarrassed when I make obnoxious mistakes like that. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, as we're getting towards the end to wrap up, you know, I'd like to kind of ask you, you know, um, you know, in terms of, of, you know, this research, um, you know, what, what would be your, your take home message for our viewers that are out here watching it and your, your, your take home and maybe delivery message, meaning what would you want people to take home and what you might you suggest that they deliver with to, to the people that they're working with and their, their school teams? Well, that's a, a big question, but I think, you know, in the end, where I ended my book, and, and that's something, Guy, that, that you have talked about as well, was with words from two educators from right across the country from each other. And that was Bernard Gassaway from New York and, um, and our friend Ron Garrison, who also taught in, um, in California. And both of them independently said, when it comes right down to it, it's all about relationship relationship, relationship. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't I, do any better than that. <laughs> absolutely. I couldn't, couldn't agree anymore with you. Um, so Beth, what, what final questions do you have? I know you always have a, a, a handful of questions left. <laughs> well, I think we have pretty much covered them all. Um, That's great. I, I, I will, I, oh, it's been fabulous. There, there was one thing that I particularly enjoyed uh, that you said, <clears throat> because I'm, I have been getting so annoyed by it. And it's always nice to have somebody that you um, admire get annoyed by the same things. <laughs> I'm not sure annoyed is the right word, but anyway, <laughs> you, mentioned you. <laughs> you mentioned potential problems with the use of metaphors, such as a bag of tricks, toolbox, or Spokesburg being common in the language of educators. And this was particularly uh, true for me this, I guess it's been a year now when the regs came, came were, were being, um, the, the regulations about restraining seclusion were being um, discussed and finalized and comments about how teachers need this in their toolbox. Mm -hmm. and, and I just want to throw up. <laughs> Yeah, what it tends to be is that this overarching idea that you can collect this series of discrete tools or something that you can use on people yes. uh, sort of episodically. And unfortunately, you know, in my experience talking with teachers, their their toolboxes are full to overflowing and they're also saying that a lot of these these things these models these five step this and four step that are conflicting and and they don't know what to make of it because it doesn't even have any coherence and mm -hmm. I, I think that you know what what i really wanted most about this book was to not create another model we have had enough models do this and everything will be fine. And what I've said in the book is that if I came to educators and said, if you just do the things that I said, or that negotiators said, everything will be fine. I'm not prepared to say that. What I'm prepared to say that is that these things need to be used situationally. And I think we talked about this before, Beth, um, before we got on here, about the whole idea that it's, it's an iterative process that you you try something and then you reflect on it and you see like, was that helpful? And if it isn't, then you don't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know what we do as, as um, human beings so often is that if something doesn't work, we do the same thing at greater intensity. Right. Yes. If you're trying yes. to get your kid to, to uh, be quiet in the restaurant, you'll say, please sit down, sit down. I said, <laughs> you know, that going on. Whereas, you know, maybe we need to change the way we do things and go, you know, this wasn't working. So let's not do it anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a great, great response. And again, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, you could put a whole lot of tools in, in a, in a toolbox uh, and focus on relationships and make a whole lot of progress. So, I mean, you know, I think the principles that, that you offer through this research can really be helpful, but it's about it's about forming a relationship with a human being and realizing that human beings are different and they have different needs and need to be uh, worked with in a, a respectful and um, you know way that that meets their needs. Work with me, not on me. Right, mm -hmm. right, absolutely. Need out for support. That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, yeah, and the, the other thing I would say is that by doing this, uh, I'm so grateful to you for writing this book. Thank you. And I am. It's just beautiful. And one of the really nice things about it is that 
the thing about be, people being too soft or being uh, not, you know, I, I want to do, I want to focus on relationships versus um, result, um, rewards and consequences right. and all that. <laughs> by say, by giving this data, this information that these hostage negotiators in the most intense kind of situations you could have, this is what worked. I mean, what more powerful message could we give about what works and what doesn't work? We, it's we powerful. Don't have statistics like that in education or anywhere else, 90%. Yeah. You know, domestic and international. And again, you know, we only hear about the ones that fail, but there's so many. And I heard so many stories. I told some of them in the book. And uh, I'll leave that as a teaser. <laughs> we'll have you back. <laughs> about, you know, what what negotiators did and, yes. and how that worked out. Yeah, so. and definitely would recommend to people to, to pick up a copy of the book. It's a fantastic book. Really does have a tremendous amount of good information. In it. And, 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 you know, the hope is, the hope with all of this that we're doing and, and the hope with having you here today is that, you know, anyone that we can reach this that this has a positive impact on and, and and rather than using their old tools and their old ways that are leading kids to be you know being you know excluded and 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 harshly punished and led down the school to prison pipeline any 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 kid that this is making a positive difference for is a step in the right direction i think there's so much great in here and and just really appreciate the work that you're doing and and you know it's work like this that you're doing that that you know, I'm hopeful is, is going to change the world and change the system and really appreciate all that you've done and uh, definitely want to have you back again. Um, and we'll have, have more questions. But in the meantime, I, I recommend everybody, you know, check out the book, uh, share it with your, your teachers and your team. Um, you know, we can do better. And if we can do better, we have to. And, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. I like the format. This is great. Great, no, it's a lot of lot of fun. Absolutely, uh, you, you know, and I give you give you credit for suggesting that you know rather than just having a presentation, let's 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 interact. And, and this has been a blast, and, and oh, really yes, enjoyed great. it. So thank and, you so much. Can I can I also add one thing Absolutely. that we will be looking at this and and putting subtitles on, and then you're going to resubmit it on YouTube once the subtitles are in. That's we correct. We want to make it accessible for people who who need that. Absolutely. So, um, yes. Just to let you know. Yep. And maybe yep. a, a couple of well-placed PowerPoints. Who knows? That's right. That's right. We're really, really excited about that and, and, and really appreciate kind of the, the collaboration. This has been fantastic. Thanks. So that's I've got a couple of announcements. My nerd husband. <laughs> that's great. Who, 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 who I think will be on a future panel discussion that we might have, right? Hey. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I've got a couple of announcements here and I'll, I'll okay. uh, send, you, send you away, but thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So um, a couple of quick announcements. I hope everybody enjoyed our presentation today. Um, really, um, you know, really great uh, opportunity um, to, to hear about Emma's book and, you know, to, to really, again, find more things that we can do uh, to do better because we absolutely have to do better. I do want to mention to everyone that we have a, um, oops, that's not the one that I wanted to share here. Um, we've got another uh, event coming up here soon. Uh, and we've got an event coming up on September 10th. Share the wrong tab there. Uh, we've got uh, Donna Shea, who's from the Peter Pan Center, who will be joining us talking about behavior. Uh, the title of the talk is The Language of Children and What We Can Learn From It. 
Uh, so really looking forward to that. That's going to be on September 10th at, oh, that should be, th- this is actually going to be at a different time. This is going to be a three o'clock Eastern daylight time. So uh, figure that out for, for your time zone, Pacific time zone. We're going to be at noon. Uh, so that will be on September 10th. So want to thank everyone again for joining us today. Uh, really appreciate everyone uh, bringing the questions. And again, I encourage you to share this with, with uh, you know, other people uh, in the, you know, in education and uh, hopefully, hopefully working together, we can all make a difference. So uh, thank you again and look forward to seeing.